0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 20th, 2022, the polls do not look amazing for Democrats edition. I'm David Plotz I'm CityCast. I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I'm in Slate's Brooklyn studios. So exciting. And I'm not alone. Woo-hoo. I'm with none other, none other. Then Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily.
1: So nice to see you. John, we missed you.
0: John was going to be with us, but mysteriously, John, who lives in New York, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime with John Dickerson, is in Washington, D.C.
2: I'm so sad not to be with you.
0: This week, GavFest listeners, you'll be sustained through the storms and rains of the following topics. First, how bad are the midterms looking for Democrats? Are the polls dire or not? Then we will talk about the extraordinary Iran protests with Iranian-American writer Roya Hakakian. Then we will talk about a critical fight over trans rights in Arkansas and a really interesting legal case there. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, GapFest listeners, we are going to be in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd in just two weeks at 7 p.m. at Georgia Tech's first Center for the Arts. Go to slate.com slash GapFest live to get tickets to that show. We loved being in Atlanta last time. We want to continue that trend. So please join us, slate.com slash to see us at Georgia Tech on Wednesday, November 2nd.
3: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk
2: about starting the morning right.
1: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient, comfortable. Ah.
0: John, a couple of months ago, Democrats were cautiously optimistic about the midterm elections. The gas prices were declining. Biden and the Democrats had passed some big bills, the Inflation Reduction Act, notably. Republicans were running some atrocious candidates and the Dobbs decision, which, though catastrophic from a policy perspective, seemed to be animating women voters. Now, as the election gets closer, the thing that generally happens in a lot of elections, uh, the fundamentals are asserting themselves. Most voters are unhappy with Biden and by extension with Democrats. The Dobbs enthusiasm seems to be waning. What's happening? What's happening now?
2: So – Gravity is reasserting itself. It it's turning out to be in a funny way. And Matt Iglesias, I think, wrote about this on Thursday morning. If Democrats, let's say, Democrats hold the Senate in their bare, bare majority, uh, or the and and only lose eight seats, so Republicans need to take six to take the House. So that would be control of the House would go to Republicans, and that would be a huge. A political um, earthquake, but historically speaking, Democrats, if they only lost say eight seats, would have lost far fewer seats than the in-party of the White House loses uh, in the post-World War II era, and in when a president of that party's approval rating is below fifty percent. Those. You know, usually they would, you, history would tell you they'd expect to lose anywhere between, say, 25 and 35 seats. So in that context, they would outperform historical expectations. It would still be a political earthquake. Why do I say all of that? Because it reminds us that the, that the historical weight— is heavy on the party that controls the white house. The policy weight is very heavy, which is when you ask people to say what issues they care about, the the issues that they say they care about are the economy and inflation. And on those issues, depending on what poll you look at the Republican, the generic Republican candidate has a 20 to 30 point advantage over the generic democratic candidate. So those are all kind of regular gravitational forces. Um, then you have the fact that the out party is often more frustrated than the in party and is therefore more enthusiastic, although in a lot of polls, it shows that the enthusiasm numbers are, are the same, which is, again, a way in which Democrats are pushing against some traditional historical trends. What's happened recently is in the generic ballot, particularly in the New York Times poll, in the generic ballot, which is used as a proxy to understand how the parties will do in the House races, Democrats are ahead in the generic ballot. Um uh, which is to say, when you ask, would you vote for a generic Republican or a generic Democrat? They People picked the generic Democrat, but now in the most recent version of that poll, they have picked... Um, they are picking the generic Republican, so that's another one of those things that's um, that's turned. And then finally, I would just point out that, as you mentioned, the the abortion enthusiasm among women post Dobbs um, appears to have waned. It is not um, it is not picked in the top tier of things that voters say they care about. Nowhere near as much as the economy and inflation. And also, then in the Times poll, there was some evidence that independent women. Sample size is a little small. The sample size was 233 independents in that poll and then i think i didn't see what the women was but if you assume that women are half of that it's yeah it's around 100 but independent women in september favored democrats by 14 points now independent women back republicans by 18 points republicans had entirely have entirely erased the 11 point edge for democrats among women in the last month um so uh Those are all some of the factors for why this gravity is returning.
0: Emily, that New York Times poll also found that Americans are concerned about the erosion of democracy, but they don't seem to be voting on it. So what what do you make of the fact that people are not voting on the erosion of democracy and, and women may not be voting on Dobbs and reproductive rights?
1: So, I mean, I think one way to think about this is the difference between Um, voting for pocketbook issues that are pressing right now. I mean, people are really feeling the bite of inflation and that really is widely felt versus these kind of more long term um, concerns that, you know, to me feel extremely pressing, but I think to a lot of people feel abstract, right? If you are seeing your paycheck dwindle and you can't buy things you want to buy, or you're worried about your economic security in the medium run, maybe that feels like more of a problem than the idea that, um, somebody, probably somebody else might have more trouble, um, controlling their reproductive future, Uh, or even that the democracy is at stake because it's not at stake right this second, like we're going to vote. So, you know, in this immediate election, the idea that this one means that um, you're protecting future elections and the kind of whole way of life in the United States, I think maybe people feel like that's kind of overblown and that you have to show them more direct evidence of a threat in order for them to vote on it. The problem, of course, being that if the direct threat is really, Looming, it may be too late.
0: It, it is amazing to me how bad inflation is as a political headwind. It is. We haven't because it of, makes
1: sense, though, because everybody oh, yeah. feels it, everyone right? Feels like it. unemployment yeah. actually affects a tiny percentage of people. I feel like, I mean, significant for those people, but relatively small. I feel like we've talked about yes, this before. Yeah. But inflation is for everyone. Yes. We all feel it.
0: Yeah, we all feel it. And and and, and it turns out, and actually, Matt has made this point. I think in the in the piece that. John was referring to a second ago, but that it it particularly bites at people in suburbs and and far ring suburbs that they drive a lot, and so those are people who had been trending democratic because of Trump. Women, especially, have been trending democratic because of Trump, and I think there's a lot of skepticism and irritation because when gas is expensive. Um, Life is a lot more expensive in places like that.
1: And if you live a life that's fairly insulated from those price swings, like your life is more urban or you have an electric car, or you bike a lot or whatever, it's easy to be kind of high and mighty that this stuff shouldn't matter to people if you're a liberal and you feel like there's this, you know, screaming emergency going on. But, you know, people's sense of what they can afford and how they feel about their economic security is important to them
2: yeah, and it's not, and it's obviously not just hitting gas. it's food and rent and all those other those other things.
1: can't help that the headlines from Britain are so bad, right? The idea that bread is super expensive there. I know that we don't live in the United Kingdom, but I just feel like that has to have some sense. And these trends do tend to, you know, go together as well.
2: What I'm interested in and which I haven't really been able to tease out of the polls as much as I'd like, is just in terms of benchmarking voter behavior, People clearly bl- say Biden isn't doing enough about inflation, um, but in the last CBS Battleground tracker poll, there was some number of people who who said, we understand that this is not the result of Biden administration policies. But in, when people say they are unhappy about and prefer the Democrats to the, I'm sorry, prefer the Republicans to the Democrats on handling the issue of the economy, is it that they, A, blame Biden, or is it, B, that they uh, think you know, Biden had a tough hand, but Republicans could handle it better. Or is it some combination? My ex- expectation is it's some combination of the two. But for those expecting improvement post-election, um, uh, with re- even if Republicans control the House and Senate on the economy, um, I think they're in for a real disappointment because there's not a lot that c- is going to be done through fiscal policy. To improve the economic situation, if, if Republicans control uh, the House and Senate,
0: right. Although, in terms of Republican politics, they probably don't care that much because everyone fights as though the White House is the only thing that matters, and Biden will take the blame if the economy doesn't perk. The one of the things that that uh, I found really interesting in some of the polling this week, which I'm, I'd love your thoughts on, is that our generation, Gen Xers, have swung. Really significantly toward the GOP.
2: Here's the thing that's goofy about that, and I asked our elections and um, surveys director Anthony Salvanto about this. There's a funky way in which that polling uh, breaks out the age cohort, so it 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 pulls in a whole bunch of boomers and near boomers in that age category. So. When Pew, um, which does a more finer look at it, it looks like Gen X is actually... Th- so the, those who grew up with Clinton and Obama um, are, uh, are sort of more liberal and more... Or, or vote for the... Pick the Democrat over the Republican. It's the boomers and people either our age or a couple of years older who pick the Republican. So, it's, so Gen X is basically... You would expect it. The oldest of Gen X vote like boomers, the younger of Gen X vote like the generation after it.
1: I have this creeping fear that our generation is just going to go down as like, Sucking terribly, like I don't know. You think that's not fair?
0: No, I was just Present. bring it. Just Why do you insecurity? think well, because Ted, Ted, because we have Ted Cruz.
1: There are that's a number our of people most prominent Xer. Yeah. Also, I just feel like we're not really leading. We've always been really anxious and kind of cramped in our aspirations for life. I don't know what have we done. I haven't really thought this okay. through, and I kind of don't believe I, in generations, but I am concerned well, about our us.
0: generation. Actually, is tremendous if you think about what we've accomplished in business and culture. Mm. If you think about, like, all of the the Google people. Oh, the, great. I the knew it. We were going to... Bezos. Tech. I'm not so convinced about uh, well. Musk Bezos. is our generation.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, awesome. Okay, uh, yeah, you're making my point for me. Our accomplishments are tech world, which I'm not, not convinced to made the world better.
2: And But Bezos is not. He's 64 and Gen X starts at 65. Bezos Can't even claim
1: Amazon, which at least has made consumption Bezos easier. is
0: that old?
2: God. He's that old, but the thing is, he looks like he, he the, the whatever the oil painting is in his attic, um, because he looks younger and younger as he gets older. Can I say one other, can I uh, swerve the car back into the road, which is, um, we, we should stop for a moment and think about the Senate, because what's, despite all the things we've talked about, there is a different story in the Senate. Traditionally, the Senate has been a little more impervious to national trends. Although in this case, of course, voters in our recent poll about Nevada, for example, eight in 10 of the voters on both sides uh, say that their vote is um, one of the things that is in mind is control of the Senate. So that tends to nationalize an election. But often or more often than in the House, you have senators who can get out from under national trends. And this in this election in particular, you have these um first of all, Democrats are not operating on Republican turf. You know, they're mostly operating on Biden turf where there are close races. And um, also you have these, you know, troubled Republican candidates. Um, So you could, that's why the polls um, and everything we've talked about beforehand might not apply in terms of Democrats
0: uh, retaining control of the Senate. Yeah, it is. You do stop and think like, if the Republicans had just... Nominated some reasonable people in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in New Arizona. Hampshire, in Arizona. They would it would just we would not even be having any kind of conversation right now.
1: Right, it's like they gave themselves a big handicap, but it may not in the end be enough to sink them.
0: As you know, Gabfest listeners, we do bonus segments for Slate Plus members every week here on the Gabfest, and this week we're going to talk about yay. That's how I think you pronounce it. The artist formerly known as as Kanye West, who says he's buying the right-wing sewer rat Twitter knockoff site uh, parlor, We will attempt to make sense of this circus. I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That is 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn and Amicus and my favorite, Hang Up and Listen. Slate's podcasts cover major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash. They analyze what's going viral, and they decode cultural mysteries. If we have become part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate+. Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash GabFest Plus to access all of Slate's content and support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The future
3: of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you
0: listen to podcasts. We are joined by Roya Hakakian. Roya is the author of A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and Curious. She is a poet and a journalist, and she has been one of the most eloquent American voices about the Masa Amini protests that have been roiling Iran. So, Roya, we have actually not talked about this on the Gabfest. So can you... uh, Except for
1: I recommended an interview uh, with you.
0: (laughs) But, okay, but, (laughs) all right, can you begin by situating us? What are the protests that have... uh, have so roiled Iran for the past month? what caused them? What did the protesters seek? and how has the Iranian government responded to them?
3: The last time I spoke about this, I compared it to the George Floyd protests in the United States. And the reason I like that comparison with despite all of its inaccuracies is that if George Floyd weren't himself weren't an ordinary American, if he were a a political activist or or anyone else, perhaps we would not have had as much sympathy as we did, um, given who he was. So I think part of what uh, draws people uh, to the case of Mahsa Amini is that she was an everyday woman, that every ordinary Iranian who You know, maybe entirely apolitical, felt so strongly about the injustice that she experienced. And she was just coming for a few days to visit the big city, be with relatives, and go back home. Um, She has never been political. So she's not in Tehran to challenge the status quo. She's not in Tehran to, uh, you know, take off her hijab and challenge the morality police um so she's in Iran just you know as a as a tourist you know minding her own business now in in a lot of the news accounts we hear that her hijab had slipped off her headscarf uh was not where it was supposed to be um a friend of mine who's a Kurdish journalist had spoken to her family and says that that is not the case her hijab was on um what had happened was that The buttons, the bottom buttons of her Islamic dress uniform, which is sort of this baggy raincoat like uniform that you have to put on as a woman in Iran to cover the curves of your body, had uh, been left open. And that is what the morality police picked on. So, you know, if she were a feminist activist, uh, like so many that we have seen in the past few years, we would say, oh, you know, she took off her job because she was trying to uh, challenge the system, but she wasn't. And I think the fact that she was um, just a you know, regular girl, like anybody else's sister um, or daughter, and still, uh, despite all that she had done to abide by the laws, uh, she got into uh, this mess is what enraged everyone.
1: One of the amazing things about these protests is I understand people are shouting, woman, life, liberty, um, with some notion that these um, frustration about the um, conditions that women live under are intertwined into the other problems with civil liberties and freedoms and basic rights in Iran. Why is that happening? Like, obviously, there's this groundswell of support um, People are protesting in numbers that we haven't seen in years. And is it possible that there is enough frustration about women's issues to seed, a, you know, a revolution here?
3: Uh, it is a revolution. I mean, in every possible way, uh, this is the closest thing I have ever seen to the events that I personally witnessed as a kid in Iran in 1979. This is a revolution. I think... Um, There are two qualities that turn this into a revolution. One is that the regime uh, has not been able to curb them, to send people home. And the other is that the protesters have said and have shown that there is nothing other than the complete overthrow of the regime that will satisfy them. So, you know, people compare this to what happened in Iran in 2009. In 2009, during what was called the Green Revolution, um, people came to the streets saying, where is my vote? That is not what anybody's saying now. That in 2009 was a conversation with the system. They were, they were saying, you know, we are we have a demand. We believe that our elections were rigged and we want you to do the right thing by us. This is not what the public is demanding at the moment. They're saying, uh, "We want nothing other than the supreme leader, uh, all the system being entirely removed from power."
2: Roya, that seems to be a request that's that the the regime won't wouldn't allow such a request. I mean that, and we've seen lots of violence as a result. But what you just said struck me is as, as a, a demand that that's existential for the regime, and therefore it just it it will have to get put down violently do you see any other option
3: i don't hear and do not see any sign of compromise i think in in some ways if they were smart they should have compromised in 2009 that was a missed opportunity because right now no reformist no figure from you know that whole Bygone possibility of you know what if we could introduce some uh, you know some moderate from within the regime to appease the protesters that could have happened in two thousand and nine. Right now, it, I am seeing something I have never seen. People are defacing the images of Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Iranian of Iran's Islamic Republic. That had never happened at any point in, in any of the previous demonstrations. So when, when the demonstra- demonstrators go as far as they have, it means that, you know, people are done uh, with this entire ideology.
0: Where you met with Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, and what, I wonder what tools you think the United States has to help the protesters. If, if we want to deploy them, what, what could we actually do that might have an impact? And do you think we're deploying them?
3: No, we're not deploying them. And you know, I'm I'm one of those odd Iranians. Um, I'm I'm very optimistic. I don't go to meet with the Secretary of State thinking that these people want to screw us. I was there thinking, oh look, you know, they're really trying to make conversation and understand this. And and I, I really do think um, Secretary Blinken and others who were at that meeting are trying to figure this out i think however the problem is that for the last 20 years everybody in europe and in the united states and in our country the democrats especially have been so wedded to the idea of uh, jcpoa to you know to the idea of nuclear negotiations and you know to say forget about nuclear negotiations and by the way you know the people want to overthrow the regime is just something that I think nobody is psychologically and intellectually ready for. And I think that unreadiness is what struck me the most uh, in Washington, because I also met with some members of the Senate um, when I gave a testimony uh, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I don't see that our administration at any level has been ready for this. But I think if they come together and if they can kind of say okay you know we had a different we had a plan a but obviously plan a is not working so let's switch to plan b if they show intellectual agility then i think there's there're there's a whole host of things they can they can possibly do and i can enumerate them you know i think they can um work with the european allies they can withdraw ambassadors they can using the fact that iran is uh, sending drones to Ukraine, uh, bear you know, uh, bear on Iran in a, in a different, under completely uh, different uh, international conventions that they are, they have been using thus far um, to really squeeze the regime.
0: Roya Hakakian, thanks for coming on the Gabfest.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: Whoa, as we were finishing that segment, comes news that Liz Truss has resigned. That is amazing. From
1: being prime minister of Britain.
0: Right. And Boris Johnson may be in the competition to replace her, which would be incredible. (sighs) This week saw the start of a fascinating and critical trial that will probably have a really large impact on the right of transgender children and their parents to seek medical care. Arkansas in 2021 passed a law barring doctors in that state from providing any gender affirming care including hormone treatment, puberty blockers, and surgery to children in Arkansas, and also barring doctors from referring patients to doctors in other jurisdictions. And now four patients and two doctors supported by the ACLU have challenged this law as unconstitutional um, for discriminating against transgender kids and intruding on parents' rights and doctors' free speech rights. And um, it's really interesting. So, Emily, I know you've covered this issue a ton, Um what do you why is this trial important?
1: I mean, I think well, first of all, it's extremely important for transgender teenagers and kids in Arkansas. There are um almost two hundred and fifty patients at the medical center program that's um in the spotlight here. So in some ways, that's a small number, but it's a number that's very important to the people who are directly affected and then I think what this trial suggests to me so far is the utter poisonous nature of having politics intrude into medical decisions right now. I mean, it is just terrible to hear about kids who could lose treatment that for them is, you know, life-altering and life-critical. And the idea that the state is going to ban treatment— you know, having reported on this, I don't know anyone who works in this area who thinks that's a good idea. Nobody. That doesn't mean there aren't questions about um, exactly how treatment should work and whether, in some um, in some clinics in the U.S., the um, guidelines that uh, professional organizations have put forward are properly followed. But this place in particular in Arkansas, it's called Gender Spectrum, seems to be extremely responsible um, in the way that it proceeds. And so there's just this utter um, mismatch here between potential harm and what the state is doing. And it just this is not what the state should be in the business of getting into the middle of, interfering in these medical decisions.
2: Can you back up, Emily, and explain why the state thinks it has a a role here and whether in its claims about its role um, setting regulations for medical care, it's using a, something similar to or not similar at all to what they did in Texas on abortion, which is using the power over medical regulations to to reach beyond that to to make sort of larger cultural policy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the similarity is that you have the state interfering for what seem to be cynical political reasons um, in what should be a kind of scientific process of deciding what the rules and regulations and standards should be for providing care. So there is a similarity there, and it does feel like, um, you know, right-wing legislators have seized on this because they think it sounds scary, and um, it's a way of courting their supporters. And um, it has a really alienating effect. I mean, some of the testimony this week, uh, Dr. Michelle Hutchison, who um, worked at Gender Spectrum for a few years, she was talking about how Much anxiety levels among kids have gone up um, at the clinic where this treatment is being offered and there have been some concerns about um, kids threatening suicide. And you can really imagine, first of all, there's just the direct impact of being afraid that your own life, your care is going to be taken from you, not for reasons that have any kind of medical or scientific basis, but because some politicians decided that you shouldn't have it. And then also just the stigma of this is so um, bad for kids to be made to feel that this thing that they need is something that the state thinks is, you know, harmful and terrible. Um, it just really does a lot of damage, these kinds of laws. And and yeah, in that sense, there is a parallel with Texas.
0: And I know this doesn't exactly apply, but what what are the limits on when parents can not provide or provide Medical care to their children. Like, is there any limit? Could it? Can a parent deny a child cancer treatment? Like a sixteen-year-old, can they say you're, you cannot get this? radiation. We don't think you should get this radiation.
1: I think that a, a child in that sort of circumstance might, if they could figure out how to voice their concerns and that maybe that would happen for their medical providers, then you might have a court appoint a guardian for the kids, some way to have to adjudicate whether this medically necessary care was being denied. But what's happening here is the opposite. These are kids whose parents have consented right. to the treatment. And right. so that's another way in which you're just interfering in the family dynamic, right? Um Yeah. I mean, to me, what's sort of especially, I think, cruel here is that to the extent there's a scientific debate about, you know, why the number of kids seeking care is rising and why many more teenagers are identifying as transgender, it is mostly concentrated in very progressive communities, right? It's like people I know, people you guys know. Um, It's in blue parts of the country. This is a very red part of the country in which kids are having to really fight, right? They're having to get past a lot of stigma and shame in a lot of circumstances to seek this care to begin with.
2: Emily, there are also cases uh, somewhat similar in um, Alabama and Texas where judges have stepped in the way of local efforts to um impose these kinds of regulations do you think that this decision which is the first case i guess at this level of its kind um will have effects in those other places or do each one of these instances have to be um taken through the courts as they are
1: I mean, the technical answer is that Arkansas is in a different part of the federal court system than Texas and Alabama. It's uh, under the auspices of the Eighth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. And so that's like a separate track from um, the federal courts in Texas and Alabama. However, I think a trial like this is really important for airing the evidence. And so I think What you get from a trial like this is an airing of the evidence on both sides and a full record. It's unlikely that Texas and Alabama are going to produce a different record. Um, And so the decisions of the courts um, aren't binding in those other states. But the idea that we've had judges look at these facts, that these premises, um, that this law is being tested, and that there's a factual record is very, very important.
0: I wonder, do you think we're going to be able to bring – contemplation and patience back to this incredibly important and existential issue for so many people? Or is it the politics are just so bad and so poisonous as in such an effective culture war issue for the right that that we just can't?
1: In the short term, I feel really pessimistic about it because it is this um, cultural weapon for the right, mostly. And I think, um, in the longer run, we're going to know more. We're going to have more research from Europe if from nowhere else. And that will give people a stronger sense of how to proceed. But in the short run, this does just seem like, you know, a really sad kind of political disaster to me.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, Emily, I we're not going to have a cocktail because it's lunchtime, but maybe we'll we'll – We'll have a, a pre-unboozy cocktail. Martini
1: we have a three-martini lunch at 11 o'clock in the morning.
0: You have such well, limited ambitions. All right, fine. What will you be chattering to me about when we have a three-martini lunch in a few minutes?
1: I will be chattering about Nora Ephron's salad dressing recipe, which is back in the news because of the gossipy story about Olivia Wilde, uh, movie director, and Harry Styles' um, pop star who uh, supposedly maybe had an affair. There was some accusation by a nanny in the Daily Mail and a piece that was taken down that Wilde made salad dressing um, or made some salad with dressing for styles and this is part of why Wilde's marriage broke up. I have no idea whether that is the case and I should not be repeating it, but it is the setup for Olivia Wilde having posted not only Nora Ephron's um, salad dressing recipe, but the page from Nora Ephron's famous book Heartburn about her own divorce in which this salad dressing recipe plays an important role. So, I am a huge Nora Ephron fan. I think that i made the salad dressing even before I learned about Nora Ephron, but I've been doing it wrong. I kind of knew this already. I put too much vinegar in this. My husband would be the first to tell you. I'm very dependent on the salad dressing recipe. I do sometimes get a little bit bored of it. So I've been trying lately to make... So I really like making homemade salad dressing, but it cannot have more than like four ingredients in it. I am sorry. That is my limit. And it also cannot involve any machines. I have to be able to do it by shaking a jar, basically. So lately, I've been trying to make lemon tahini dressing. I have not really found one, a recipe that I like. Same with green goddess dressing. So Gaffest listeners, if you have, let's say, um, four or five ingredients, fewer is fine. Four. David says four is perfect. I got one perfect. for you. Okay, great. David, are you going to give us yours? Because I'm hoping that we will also yeah. get people to send them. But it's I want Olive yours. oil,
0: uh, shallot, Dijon mustard, rice vinegar.
1: Okay, that's close because it still has mustard in it, Nora Ephron's, but it's a little different. I want a few recipes that don't have Dijon mustard in them. That's my big ask. Anyway, send us your salad dressing recipes.
0: John, what's your chatter?
2: I would like to respond. I would like to respond first to the gentle lady from New Haven. First, I'm. I, I didn't re- I, I, you all must eat a lot of salads. Um, I think we just eat boring like arugula which is just uh, oil lemon and some salt. So I feel
1: I think that Anne is going to be insulted. No, by I feel this. like I have had dinner at your house with excellent salads well, no, it's, and I think no
2: no, figure, no, 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 it's 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 the way I feel about your um, your wide variety of television watching is like I I feel like we watch like one thing and then that's I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking we need to to jazz up our salad game. So I'm um, my chatter is about uh, two things. One, um, uh, this Sunday morning, I'll have a piece on Sunday morning. I interviewed Bob Woodward, who has released all eight hours of his interviews with Donald Trump. Um, people are probably... The, had for their torture? F- had their fill of Donald Trump, as, da- as David's interjection just adequately represented. And I couldn't agree more. Um, but I think two things are interesting. One... There is something about listening to Trump in this context, which is it's a it's it, you get a sense of him, you can listen to him and hear and understand why people are captive um, to him. Lindsey Graham is in some of the instances. you hear what Lindsey Graham is like around Donald Trump, which I think is interesting relative to um, some people's views of m- the modern political movement. I think it's fascinating to hear Trump talk about these Kim Jong-un letters. And um, the photographs he has with him. When you hear him talk at length and depth and f- about getting these pictures so that Woodward can see them, the 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 depth of um, attention and focus on the letters and pictures, juxtaposed with the lack of depth and focus or an attention to other matters that are obviously far more grave, it's just got all kinds of stuff going on. in It it, it, it was um uh it's 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 fascinating also obviously, if you're interested in the presidency, much of these conversations are woodward trying to get Trump to engage with any of the obligations of the office as they're traditionally understood um and uh anyway, so the other thing though is the Tampa Bay um, Times published footage body cam footage of Florida voters being arrested as a part of the um, Governor DeSantis's crackdown on, on uh on, I guess, voter fraud as a part of his um, uh, his voter fraud unit, um, and the videos are uh, are they're chilling. They're they're sad. The, the 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 cops making the arrests are 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 you know uh, they, they feel embarrassed. You can hear it in their voice and the way they talk. The the citizens of Florida are totally bewildered. And Emily, you'll check me if I'm wrong, but. In 2018, Florida passed a referendum, I think by 65% of the vote that said felons could vote. There is there are certain kinds of felons as I understand it who can't and that's where this is. So it's basically these um, these citizens of Florida were told in some instances at the DMV that they could vote, that that, that because of this referendum and the legislation that that um, came after it, or I guess the statute, sorry, that came after it, that they could vote, it was okay. And so it's a misunderstanding. And you see the bewilderment in their faces. And and the power of the state is there. And we're talking about, I think in the end, like it was 19 arrests or something, um, more proof that, um, that you have to really work hard to find voter fraud, and that it's not the result, as we've long known, forever, this is like saying... The moon is not made of cheese, but the organizing principle of of one of our two political parties is that widespread fraud exists. And so we have to engage with the idea that the moon is not made of cheese. And this is more proof that, um, you know, in order to find voter fraud, you, it, it, it has to be done in this in this way that is comes into high relief
0: in these videos.
1: Yeah, it's really, really deeply upsetting.
0: My chatter is not deeply upsetting, I'm sorry to say. My chatter is about a great lottery scam story. I am a sucker for a lottery scam story, and The Atlantic has a doozy this week by Jeff Mache. It is about Victor Jonia, who is a real estate broker in Michigan who won tens of millions of dollars in the Michigan State Lottery over years by buying huge numbers of tickets and a daily uh, drawing for four numbers a uh, four-number drawing that they did every day, and you would win, I think, up to $5,000 per correct ticket. But he would buy hundreds of tickets uh, in certain numbers, and and over time, he believed he had cracked the system, and he actually won enormous amounts of money, enough that Michigan ended up changing how people bought tickets so Jonia couldn't do his his mass purchases in quite the same way. The point of the piece is, like, did this guy actually figure something out in the lottery? Was he a savant or was he a crook or was he a sucker? And it's just an amazing story about like someone's, someone's apparent extraordinary good luck. But was it good luck or something else going on? So check it out in the Atlantic. Listeners, you also have great chatters. In fact, I almost did this as my own chatter this week. Uh, because I liked it so much because I personally spent a lot of my childhood doing the activity that this chatter involves. So Laura Hagen, take it away.
3: I'm Laura from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and my chatter comes from a video tweeted by The Nerdist about the Dutch Domino team. The team set the amateur record at the World Domino Collective in August. Their course took two weeks to assemble and required 750,000 dominoes. What they built is amazing in its creativity and engineering. It includes castles and skyscrapers, roller coasters, and even 3D structures. The video is 17 minutes long, but it's well worth your time. You'll be mesmerized, in suspense, and maybe stressed out like I was, all at the same time. There's also a behind-the-scenes video that shows the team's process, their accidents, and the immense amount of teamwork and sweat equity that went into the project. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
0: I did. I, I
1: cannot wait to watch. that. I
0: watched seventeen full minutes and the and behind the scenes video. Uh, you if you have a, a chatter, please tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest or email us at gabfest at slate.com. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. researchers Bridget Dunlap our theme music why They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio. For Slate, Merritt Jacob had a special role this week because we're in Brooklyn and Merritt is, is, is here engineering us. It's so nice to see Merritt again. Haven't seen him in two plus years. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet and chat to us there and come to our live show in Atlanta. Slate.com slash GabFest Live on Wednesday, November 2nd for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson David Plotz talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Uh, Ye says he is buying Parlor, which is the right-wing cesspool Twitter knockoff. This follows several weeks of erratic anti-Semitic behavior by the rap star icon, in which he was frozen out of Instagram and Twitter for Anti Semitic bile, annoyed lots of people by wearing a White Lives Matter t shirt to a fashion show, gave a bizarre interview to Tucker Carlson, and generally became a kind of like right wing darling for the moment. So it is not unusual for people to get very rich and to have the troublesome aspects of their personality come to the fore. Um, So it's kind of a natural progression for him. He's been getting. More and more erratic and conspiratorial as he's gotten richer and more famous, and he's always been a kind of erratic and conspiratorial person. But there's more of it, so I don't know where how do, where to start. This it's a it, John John's description was this is a clown car. I think when we I don't know. No, we, I said it was a carny show, a carny show, a carny show. Yeah. Um, what is worth talking about here?
2: Well, here I'll I'll, ta- I'll make it as boring as possible. <laughs> I mean, so I guess. I mean, what's worth talking about is, is like, what's the... Does your freedom of speech um, guarantee you a freedom of, of reach? So you can say whatever you want, but does a company have to be obligated to let you say it? And when people say o- outrageous, objectionable, and dangerous things, there's no obligation for a private company to um, let them do it. And so people like Kanye and President Trump, former President Trump and others, try to go build a market for their crazy things. And that was really successful in politics with talk radio and with mainstream conservative media, which was an antidote to, um, or a way to get around.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today.